The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Hey everyone, Mike here. I want to thank you for coming back to the Invictus Mind podcast. This is episode number 91. I think you will really enjoy this episode. I did. My guest was fantastic and very insightful. I also want to thank him for his helping me even getting out an episode for you all this week. Obviously, this is not my full-time job, but it is a labor of love, so I'll share with you a quick story. If you are new to podcasting or even if you've been doing this for a while, but are still not big enough to hire a professional full-time production team, then you're going to appreciate this. You know, technology is amazing until it isn't. And I'm quite sure that you know how frustrating it can be when things don't work correctly. So I do apologize in advance for this episode because about 25 minutes into our discussion, you're going to hear a difference in the sound quality coming from my end. Our discussion was interrupted for about 10 minutes as my guest and I were talking because I was frantically looking to a solution to the problem. My microphone went out and I tried to change the mic, change the mic cable. I even shut off the zoom because I thought there was an internet problem. I eventually found out later that it was a USB port on my laptop that connects to my Focusrite interface. So after about 10 minutes of not knowing what to do, I didn't want to waste any more of this gentleman's time. So rather than quitting and rescheduling the podcast, I decided we were just going to continue with the microphone on my laptop. And that, of course, unfortunately is very poor. But because I did lose half of my Zoom recording, I cannot put a video on YouTube this week. But Miles was generous enough to record the podcast on his end and forwarded me a copy. So if you're listening to this, you will hear our entire discussion, but please don't turn it off when the sound changes. You don't want to miss out on Miles' awesome story about his working with Bitcoin, his interactions with the defamed journalist Julian Assange, and the insights he shares about what to expect in the future of this dying empire. I do want to briefly mention that Miles and I connected on a new website I discovered called podmatch.com. It's been a really good place for me to find guests such as this one, and I will certainly have others there as well. So if you are a podcaster struggling to find quality guests, then I advise you to check it out. The profile maker on the website is very intuitive as it matches like-minded people in together. And if you're not a podcaster but you are looking to be a guest on someone else's show, it's also a great place for you to look there as well. I do have an affiliate link if you are interested. You can sign up at uh, https uh, forward slash forward slash podmatch.com forward slash sign up slash Invictus. So if you want to find a great website to find new guests or to be a guest on somebody else's, check out podmatch.com. All right, so that's enough of that. Let's get on to the show. Welcome back to the Invictus Mind Podcast, the number one show dedicated to help through learning and association to find political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. This is your host, Mike Corbell, and I want to thank you for coming back to the program. And as usual, I have a fantastic guest with me today. 
But before we get started, all I ask is one thing. You know, I've heard that there are three kinds of people in this world. Those who are making things happen, those who watch as things happen, and those who have no clue and wonder what just happened. On this show, my hope is to help people become the ones that are making things happen, but at the very least to become one who is aware of things that are taking place and not to be clueless and possibly victims of the changes that are happening around us. In order to get this done, we need to help to get this message out. So if you like this show, please share it with three of your friends. You can find it, of course, on any of your favorite media players as well as YouTube. And also, please leave me a review on whatever platform you listen to. I would love to hear your feedback, and doing this will help this program climb the chart so more people can discover the important truths that we're discussing here. When more people are informed, then more people can become Invictus, and that, in my opinion, will be a benefit to everyone. All right, so let's continue. You know, one of the reasons why I love podcasting is because I get to meet so many interesting people. My guest today is actually an Australian immigrant who moved to the United States in 1989. His career started in the technology industry and was one of the very early software developers for the first personal computer. On top of that, he was an early adopter of Bitcoin and has become a real estate investor. His story is one of success and he has become a multimillionaire even though he never graduated high school or went to college. He believes that selling his time by the hour is a sucker's game and he would rather purchase assets and live off the proceeds. His philosophy is that human beings have unlimited potential, but most people who don't have true freedom are living a constrained life because of self-inflicted wounds. He is the host of the Unconstrained podcast and at times a co-host of a show called The World According to Ben Stein. I've asked him to join me today to tell his story and perhaps offer some advice about the current state of the economy and how it's never too late to get informed about what it takes to truly live an unconstrained life. I'd like to welcome Miles Wakeham. How are you doing today, Miles? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're quite welcome. You know, I can't believe that we ha- I've never come across your name before. And uh, for the audience that um, is listening, I, you know, we, we met first on the Podmatch website. But you have been featured on some of my favorite podcasts, uh, including uh, The Simple Life with Gary Collins. Uh, of course, you were also on the Expat Money Show with Mikhail Thorpe. And uh, I, I know that on your podcast, you hosted Mark Claire from the Lions of Liberty. I, I don't know mm-hmm. if you uh, appeared on his show or not, but you hosted him. Yeah, I've been on the show. They're all good friends. I had lunch with Gary Collins yesterday. So, yeah, we're all, we're all pretty tight. Awesome. Well, you know, I wanted to uh, um, catch up to speed with my audience and, and let you share a little bit about your story and whatever I missed in the, pro, in the intro there. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself and why I think that uh, this conversation will be very interesting to the audience. So what did I miss in your profile? Mal, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I guess you know, most of it you probably got. I, I've had one of those weird lives where I've gone from hero to zero to hero to zero so many times. I've made millions. I've lost millions. Um, I've, I've been around the block, shall we say. And a lot of that it, it's kind of indicative of the fact that I come from a, I, I was raised in a different culture to uh, the typical Americana uh, lifespan. And, and that that's made my definition of what the, the overused word freedom really meant. Because whereas I understand having lived in the United States for over 25 years and I'm a US citizen and so on, I understand the concept of freedom here um, where I grew up in Australia, freedom is nature not killing you. 
Freedom is not being, you know, eaten by a, a shark in the ocean. Freedom is not having a spider, you know, bite you in the middle of the night and you're dead. Um, that's freedom. We, we're a fairly tough crowd. We don't, uh, we have to deal with mother nature and we learn our role. We learn how to respect it. We learn how to be courteous, uh, courteous and ceremonial to some degree because of our English heritage. But for the most part, the buck stops on our desk and that's just the way it is when you live on the other side of the planet on an island, that's how life is. And so I took that found that formation of, of thought, that formation of, of identity. And when I came to the United States, I was a fish out of water. I, I, I was like, like Crocodile Dundee. You know, I didn't, I didn't fit. I was in Los Angeles, I didn't fit. But all of a sudden I had to adapt and I realized, you know what, if I can adapt to everything that I grew up with in, in nature, I can adapt to weather changes and, and all of that stuff, then I can certainly adapt to urbanization in the United States. And I did. And, and I think that that adaptation taught me a different perspective about what people were challenged with in the US. Mm. Uh, and that's kind of, I guess that's really been the underpinning of, of a lot of what I teach and a lot of what I've observed and what I've learned, uh, because my, my education never stops. I'm just, you, you mentioned before, you, you're absolutely right. I never finished high school because at the time that I wanted to get into the computer business in the late seventies, there was absolutely no university courses teaching computer science. Computer mm. science wasn't a thing we invented computer science we became the professors of our industry and there was no sense in losing a lot of money and four years of opportunity cost when the op the opportunity is right there in front of you should you wish to embrace it and that's what i chose to do um and that's interesting because constantly in in the united states having come here with no one knowing my background knowing knowing what i did uh prior to walk into a company that you literally with your eyes closed could fix their problems. And you've got an HR department going, well, you don't have the right piece of paper. You don't have the right bachelor's degree from the right college. And therefore we can't employ you. And I'm like, well, you're lost buddy. Because at the end of the day, I built the industry that you're trying to hire me to fill a porn position in. And, and I'm not trying to sound, uh, too audacious or, or, you know, but, but when you come from that background, it's like nothing makes any sense anymore. What's happened over the course of decades of being here, raising families, buying and selling things, um, making money, losing money, the whole bit is you start realizing when you fall back to that basic reality of raw, uh, human experience, raw psychology, understanding how you have to get along with people how you have to work with people, how you have to form teams and you have to become a part of something, you all of a sudden realize that the definition of freedom that you have differs a lot from what most of the people that I talk to have. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you know, as I'm trying to unpack uh, everything you said there, um, I've been on this uh, tirade of telling people that college is going to be obsolete in the future. And uh, most of the successful people that I've ever learned about or met or, or read about uh, you know, they're either college dropouts or, you know, they went on to, to do something great in their lives without actually having that piece of paper that that for a period of time was so expected in, in culture. But, uh, you know, I think that, uh, 
your story is just one that just proves that maybe I'm on the right path here by saying, you know, college it may be important for some people, but uh, not everybody uh, is, uh, you know, needed to go. Well, you know, that's, that's a that's a long conversation in itself, but <laughs> well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that one of the things as a when I came full circle and became a parent and eventually my daughter who did go to college and did graduate college and I was faced with the fact that this was going to cost me, you know, six figures and and was it the right thing for her? I had to. I played a, you know, it's weird. For myself, I take risks. I don't shy away from them, right? I, I learn how to mitigate risks. I need control of my life. That's just how I am. And I think that if more of us adopted that approach, we'd be a far more sane society. We don't want to de defer our responsibilities to other people all the time. It's burdensome on them and it, it's exploitive of ourselves. Uh, but having said that, when I had a daughter who needed an education what did i do i i followed that same social mantra that all my american friends had been brought up with and that was go to college study hard graduate get a good job work and retire when you're 65. and then i looked at myself in the mirror and i said well i didn't do that and it worked out pretty good for me and then i looked at my father who did that and he died at the age of 67 two years after he retired and i'm like i'm not going down that path so the, the, the dichotomy here is, as a parent, why am I putting my daughter in the same situation? She graduated four years later, mm -hmm. didn't do anything to do with what her studies were, and to this day is still wondering what she wants to be in life. Mm. And I'm looking at it going, but at, at, she's 24, and at her age, I was on a plane coming to Los Angeles to change the world. I mean, why is it that she isn't doing that? What, why is that missed opportunity there? And I, I realized, well, it's just we come from a different culture. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the story of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. If you're familiar with that one from Robert Kiyosaki, you know, yeah. where, uh, you know, you do everything that you, you mentioned, the American, you know, mantra. And this is what happens. Robert Kiyosaki, of course, that story is a fictional story, but it, it, it had a... Uh, had a good point, you know, those who are willing to take risks, those who are willing to think outside of the box often can find the reward from doing that. Whereas most people, sadly, in this country, they, they follow that pattern, that, uh, that standard that uh, we're told from the time we're little kids, and then they wonder why they haven't gotten ahead. There's, there's a lot more to that. But um, Miles, I know this is the first time you and I have met and are talking. I want to share just for a minute here my, my background and my story mm -hmm. and kind of where I'm going with this show, because uh, I think that your story uh, will really kind of amplify the message that I want to get out there. So I, uh, I was a college graduate. I actually started my career in heating and air conditioning. So at first I was, uh, you know, I graduated high school and I just found myself into the blue collar world of, of HVAC. And I didn't really like that. But along the way, I, I had a friend of mine who uh, was actually in the financial services industry. And uh, he, uh, long story made short, he, he got me involved with his company and I, I, I changed directions. I, I got out of heating and air conditioning and I started pursuing business and, and financial services. After that point in time, I actually went to college and I had a, um, pretty much a free ride at DeVry University because uh, I worked for the school as well. All right. Okay. And so when I got into financial services, here's, here's the thing that really kind of, makes me think about uh, the state of this country. 
you know, a lot of times what I'm doing is I'm recruiting people to the industry to, to learn how to teach people about how to make better decisions with their money. And so most people, you know, they go to school, they, you know, get a good education, they get a job, and then they wait till, like you mentioned, 65 for that retirement. But along the way, every single person who has a free cup of coffee or a free T-shirt will give them a credit card and people get into debt. Right. And people come out of school with hundred thousand dollars of debt and they don't know how to balance a checkbook. You know, I don't know how many people actually balance a checkbook anymore anyway. But not only are, are they strapped with debt, you know, they uh, they don't understand how money actually works. So when I was in the financial services world, my job was to teach people how to actually figure out the system, as it were, as how to how to not be in debt, how to pay off their debts, how to do simple things like uh, invest in in things like insurance and, and other types of stocks and bonds and, and put themselves into a place. But you know what happened, Miles? Along the way of my career that's lasted 15 years now, I, uh, I became a libertarian and I took the red pill, as, as the saying goes, and my eyes were open as to some of the things that are actually hurting this country and hurting people worldwide that were not offered in the traditional financial services industry. You know, the same thing. These are the programs that have worked within the system. But now there's all kinds of things outside of that system that are just like people are not aware of. And what I'm trying to do is, is help people understand the, the way that they can develop prosperity, the way that they can help themselves and not be a victim of what I call a victim of society because they're just taught to go along with the program to just do this, is what you're supposed to do to, to get to that retirement age. And my thinking has flipped. Retirement is not the same as it used to be, I don't think. You know, people... I don't think that people want to work 40 hours a week uh, for 40 years and then just retire at 65. There's a lot more to life that uh, people are missing. And, uh, and that's really what uh, my eyes have been open to. I, so what I'm trying to do here is have conversations to show people how to think outside of the box instead of just those standard things that they're, uh, they've been programmed to do over time. Right. Well, I, I, I would have to agree. I haven't had a job for 25 years. <laughs> I am happily unemployed. Um, but I have, you know, I, I have properties all through this country and other countries. I live half of my life traveling overseas. Um, I'm free as a, as a bird, so to speak. Uh, why, why is it that I achieved that? Because I did exactly the opposite of what everyone else does. And it wasn't because I was trying to be, um, you know, uh, just a naysayer or just to be, you know, the opposite my background is different and I, my approach is different and I got branded as a contrarian because everything I did was the polar opposite of everybody else. But um, I, I would agree with you in regards to what people have been taught, what people have been told, what they believe their life purpose is because it's usually completely wrong. Um, let me throw a few ideas out that might blow some of your listeners' minds and so on. Sure. Uh, America is at the end of this empire. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. There are signs that things happen at the end of empire. It's historical. It's been like this since the Roman Empire and so on. And one of the things that often happens is countries that are at the end of their empire go into massive levels of debt. Uh, we saw this, for example, with the British Empire um, in the 1800s after the, at the end of the Industrial Revolution, um, that they could not afford their colonies. 
they were taxing their colonies because they couldn't generate revenue back home. And that was a sign of an end of empire. We saw exactly the same thing with the Spaniards. We saw exactly the same thing uh, going back. It's continuous. Exactly the same thing is happening right now. Normally, these sorts of things mean that the individual is being kind of given the responsibility of, of, of trying to prop this failed empire up by way of individual debt load. And the unfortunate thing is that about 100 years ago in this country, they worked out that rather than taxing people individually who would naturally react negatively to that, they would just fight back, you know, Boston Tea Party sort of thing. Um, Instead of that, it would is easier to eke out their money by way of diluting the currency valuation. So what we end up with is a situation where a dollar in 1913 buys three cents worth of stuff today. I'm sorry, the other way around. A dollar of today buys three cents worth of stuff in 1913. Sure. We've lost 97% of our dollar. And if you look at, at all empirical uh, decline, you will see that all empires who have what we would call a fiat or a currency by decree monetary system always goes to zero. It, it, it's always the case. What happens is we see our prices going up. We call it inflation, but we don't really understand what it is. And what it really is is a devaluation of the spending power of our dollar. So whereas a lot of my friends would say, hey, I bought this house for $100,000 20 years ago, and today it's worth $2 million. Well, there might be some capital appreciation in that, but what did your $100,000 buy you 20 years ago? What was right, the true right. value of that adjusted for inflation? And people don't do that. The measurement stick that they use is completely flawed. And unfortunately, that progresses all the way through to government, who then have policies that, again, for, the, for their, their greatest ideal here is to, is to retain empire. But they do every single thing possible at the end of it, and they don't accept the fact that decline is inevitable. And whereas other countries are on the ascent, we are on the descent. As much as I don't want to say that and, and come across like I'm not a, a patriotic, loyal American citizen, at the same time, I see that most of these problems were self-inflicted. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, that you were called a contrarian, and I think that when we first connected via email, that was the thing that stuck out to me the most, because I, I have just recently been called a contrarian by uh, no less than uh, some of the people I work with in my own industry, <laughs> because I do think outside of the box. You know, teaching people about inflation is one thing, but most people don't understand why that even occurs. You know, I'm thinking back to, a, you know, a famous book called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Love that, that book. The whole story of the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. Great book. It is a great book. And, you know, if you try if you try to teach people how money really works, it, it seems to go over their head because they don't really offer any financial education in school at all. They just know, hey, prices are going up. They always have gone up. They think it's natural. They think it's normal. But, uh, you know, at some point, the um, everything has to come due, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm a big free market guy. Um, many people call me an anarcho-capitalist because I'm kind of closer to that sort of construct. But with that said, I would, I would say that the problem is we're living in an illusion that we have a free market when we don't. What we have mm -hmm. is a manipulated market controlled by people of power and their, and their cronies uh, that are around them. And that means that for you and I trying to get, go out there and eke out an honest living, uh, the, everything's against us. We won't achieve doing that. And yet 
we continue knowing this, knowing that people is 78% of people, according to Forbes magazine, are living paycheck to paycheck and 65% of, of college graduates never actually do a career that has anything to do with their major and that only about 38% of people at the age of 65 can retire. Knowing yeah, all yeah. of these things, we continue to follow down the exact same mantra, and that is take out a six-figure debt, you know, for a student loan, go and get a degree, go into the workforce for 40-plus years, get that mortgage at low interest, and don't worry, you can refinance it five times over. And every time you do that, you reset the clock on that 30-year mortgage. People don't realize the literal French translation of the word mortgage is death contract. <laughs> so right. if if you understand that you know from the age of 18 until the day you die the banks want to extort interest out of you and so therefore but rather than addressing that issue what we do is we look for a cheaper credit card we look for a better car payment we extend a, a 48 you know month loan on a car payment to 72 or 80 or whatever mm -hmm. we can do to keep that price down because for us it's all about selling our future it's all about having that cash flow and being able to live a quote, you know, good life. And at the end of the day, we walk away with nothing. We've achieved absolutely nothing in terms of what we've invested in and certainly never investing in ourselves. One of the yeah. greatest things that ever happened to me when I stopped working was I got to think. And the mm. second I got to think, I could rise, I could transcend the day-to-day -day distractions and I could look down upon it and I could look and say, now I understand why it doesn't work. Because you're telling me you want all of my undivided attention. So I don't get to think about this stuff. And that's why the rest of society is going downhill and cannot get out of that downward spiral. And it's sad. I, I, I run my podcast as a wake-up call for people who realize that this is what you should be doing. But don't listen to me. Watch me. Watch what I've done. I never tell anybody to do anything I haven't already done or I am not doing at a time. And thankfully, it's working out for people. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I, I, I can guarantee one thing. I have a lot more answers than what some sort of college degree in business management is going to tell you because they're not going to tell you how to fix your car. They're not going to tell you how to grow food. They're not going to tell you where to invest money to buy real estate. They're going to tell you any of that. You mentioned balance a checkbook. They're not going to tell you that, but they'll tell you how ETFs work and how, you know, the money market works and, you know, uh, uh, the laws of economics and Keynesian versus Austrian and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, really? Is that going to help you? <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know, just this morning, I, uh, you know, I did the, the mistake by uh, turning on my Facebook and, and scrolling through Facebook. And already there's conversations about how everything that's happening with high gas prices and high co food costs is, is all the president, the current president's fault. And I'm just like, you think it's all Joe Biden's fault? You know, what about the things that Trump did or the guy before him or the guy before for the last, you know, for decades? Yeah. And, 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 and most people just live lives. They, they're never made aware of anything. So I was thankful because I, uh, again, being a contrarian, I decided to, uh, you know, do what the 5% doing and, and ignore what the 95% people doing. And I started informing myself, reading a lot of books and, and listening to podcasts, you know, such as yours and, and other shows that have made me aware of some of the dangers that people face. And, you know, I think that for a long time, a lot of people knew there was something wrong, but they couldn't pinpoint it. They didn't have the voices telling them what it was. 
And then right around 2008, when we had that collapse in 2008 and 2009, people were like, okay, there is a problem here. That's when we saw the, um, you know, the 99% and a 1% over on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. We, there, were, there was protests there and people knew something was wrong. But I still don't think they have the full answer. And so like you, the purpose of this show is to help people learn the things that they need to do. Now, obviously, I'm not as successful as you are, Miles, but, uh, you know, stories like yours inspire me. Anyway, about the distraction, you know, what I was saying is that uh, most people just, you know, they're just unaware of some of the things that are happening. And in 15 years in financial services, I felt like I was just trying to teach people how to adapt to the system. But often I feel like the system is working against people. Yeah. Well, it's certainly not there to serve them. It's there to serve the people who who architected the system. So, and that's, I mean, that's our part of our human flaw in our psychology is that this, this kind of, you know, greed motive, this need of power, this, you know, domination thing. Uh, when I, we are the apex predators on this planet, uh, what do you, you know, what do you do then? <laughs> you kind of gobble up your own, I guess. <laughs> Well, so, you know, I noticed that uh, you you said you were an early adopter of Bitcoin. Now, mm-hmm. I'm one of the late adopters of Bitcoin. I, I was made aware of Bitcoin, I think it was 2017 for the first time. So it had already been around for a number of years. And we didn't see its, uh, its, its true growth potential except for the last, you know, maybe three or four. And uh, um, I, I think Bitcoin is an alternative or a parallel economy that is, is really important for people to be made aware of. Most people have at least by now heard of it. But uh, they're not implemented into it. So, what? How did you first come up with? Uh, how did you first hear about Bitcoin, and what made you think that it was a good place to get involved with? Well, I've been a cryptographer for a very large part of my career. I mean, that was something I started doing in the mid '90s. Is actually even before that, when the um, even before the internet was kind of a thing, I was you know running bulletin board services and dial-up services and things like that, and uh, you know that was part of what the sort of stuff I did. And you learn very quickly about encryption. You learn about, you know, privacy and security and all those things. And then when the internet came about, it was kind of in its initial stages. It wasn't really a big deal for that. But as it progressed, people started realizing that, I mean, they didn't see what guys like me had seen with it. I mean, it was a network. I'm used to plugging cables together and wiring networks with this one, it was a wide area network. It was this massive network. But you always realize that when it comes to things like networks and security, if you can sniff the pipe, you can read everybody's data. So the only answer to that is to encrypt it. And so I, I was part of a, a group of people involved in heavy encryption technologies. A lot of people call them cypherpunks. I wasn't really that hardcore, but I was definitely involved in that sort of element of of the internet and uh it wasn't until some of our own started getting uh seeing the negative effect of of the internet um that we really rose up and woke up to this so the story that happened for me was that uh around about 2000 and i guess it was about 2007 2008 at the time of the global financial crisis um, I had uh, some real estate which we had mortgages on. I had some pretty crappy mortgages at the time. I ended up selling real estate in another country to fund uh, buying those mortgages out 
And then with the additional capital I had, I bought a lot of other properties. But what I saw about me were all these, all of my friends who were not in such a position where they had diversification like that, and they were just going down like like crazy. And meanwhile, all of the this was at a time when society started realizing that things weren't right, and it wasn't just in banking; it was in governance, it was in opportunity discrimination, it was in fairness. And the one guy who happened to be from my home country, and that was Julian Assange, was pretty uh, vocal about trying to expose all of these uh, bad things that were going on in the world, and that was the dawn of WikiLeaks. I was not an early WikiLeaks uh, participant, but as I started to question the way society was going for those very reasons... I looked at what he was unveiling and I started realizing, yeah, this guy's onto something. So we, uh, what I did was I said, you know, I run a data center here in Phoenix with a bunch of servers in it. And I know it costs a lot of money to do that. He was doing the same sort of thing at the time, I think it was in Sweden. And he had reached out uh, at around about that time that he wanted people to donate to help keep the servers going and I'm like yeah well I, I can relate to that because I have servers so how do I donate Julian so I tried to pull out the credit card or the PayPal or whatever and all of these avenues were shut down to him I, I saw government shutting every single thing down because they did not like have anybody shining the light on the the bad deeds that were going on now as as much as people one one thing about our uh, media in our society is that we tend to manipulate truths uh, for our own benefit. We only want to hear the truths that we want to hear. We don't ever want to be told there is a portion of our tribe that are doing bad things and that they need to stop doing those things. You and I probably talk about these things, but in the light of financial crime or we see it in terms of ineffective governance and high taxation and things like that. He, as an outsider, much like me, shone the light on the humanitarian side of things. You know, journalists getting killed by helicopters in Iraq under the auspice of, uh, you know, their enemy combatants and, uh, you know, all of these things. And, and eventually other countries saw these things of their own and realized that they had to overthrow their own governance. So you had the Arab Spring, you had... Uh, Tunisia overthrow, you have Egypt, you have all of these things started to come about because he was willing to shine a light on them. It's not that he was the only person doing it. It's just that he said, I'll take the arrows for this. And then when it, when the spotlight came onto us, the United States, with all of our diplomatic cables and all of that that was going on, there was a very large portion of our government, particularly at the time under the Obama administration, who said, I don't like that. Don't tell me I'm doing bad things. You know, I want you to keep the mythology to our constituents that says we are all powerful, godlike, and you must, you know, worship us. How do I do that when you're showing up that, you know, I'm killing people here and I'm doing this and I'm doing that? It's like no one wants to hear that stuff. If you're a libertarian, you know this stuff's going on. And you know that it needs to be called out, but you know we're not we're not doing as much as good a job as he was doing at the time. So I said, okay, here's my checkbook. Let me help him fund his servers. Couldn't do it. They shut him down. He then said, 
well, there's this thing called Bitcoin. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard about Bitcoin because we were in the same cryptographic circles. Um, and as a result, I said, okay, let's get some Bitcoin. Now, this is in 2011. In 2011, Bitcoin came, the white paper came out in 2009. It didn't really get any traction other than a bunch of nerds trying to, you know, mine Bitcoin on a disused laptop or something. And, you know, I was doing bits of that just to experiment with it. But I'm a big open source proponent. I like free software. I like open source. And Bitcoin's an open source standard. So I took the code and I started to play with it and I started to work out what it was doing and I understood the simplicity and yet the complexity of it. But I never actually saw the power of a public blockchain and a, a way of transacting peer-to-peer -peer without a counterparty. I thought this is a great way to hide things, but it's not necessarily, I didn't see those advantages. Then I, one day I had a guy who was working for me in Bangladesh great programmer a genius absolute genius and and a, he became a good friend and he was living in a country which was a muslim country and we had had i don't know eight or so years prior 9 11. so there was this natural anti-muslim rhetoric going on within the united states culture and it permeated all the way through to the treasury department the cia and so on and what they did was the countries that were predominantly Muslim back then that didn't have any benefit to the United States in forming a relationship, um, they were blacklisted off the banking standard. We, You were not able to, I couldn't pay him in PayPal. I couldn't pay him in normal forms. So uh, I ended up hiring him to do work and then found myself every two weeks in my car driving down to Western Union with a bunch of cash to wire it to him to pay him only for him to tell me when he eventually received the money, he lost 27% of it to the trolls on the bridge, the, all the money grabbers, you know, the, the money exchanges. Um, I realized there had to be a better way. And I'd just been experimenting with Bitcoin to pay Julian Assange, give him, donate some money to him. I said to him, why don't we try Bitcoin? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm up for that. So. Back in those days, the only exchange you could buy it from was empty Gox in Japan. So uh, I had to wire a bunch of money to them. And of course, at the time, I think the wire fees were pretty expensive. I mean, like 75 bucks or something like that. So it didn't make any sense to wire a small amount of money. I had to wire enough. And I knew this guy was going to be working for me for at least six months. So why don't I just prepay his six months worth of money by putting it in Bitcoin and then I'll pay him out of the exchange as he needs it every couple of weeks. So I put a, I don't know, a couple of thousand bucks, maybe, maybe more than that, five grand or something into Bitcoin for him when Bitcoin was $7 each. So I had a lot of Bitcoin. So then what, what happened was he then came to me and said, it's all good, but I'm having a hard time cashing it out to my local currency. And then we did a little experiment and we found an exchange in Hong Kong that was one of the first that could tie a debit card to a Bitcoin account. Mm -hmm. And so I moved all of my Bitcoin out of MT Gox and into this exchange to a company called ANX. Mm -hmm. And uh, right after that, MT Gox got hacked and it went down. <laughs> it was like, oh, I got lucky. <laughs> Couldn't believe that one happened. But anyway, 
He's now got a debit card. He's going to his ATM at his local 7-Eleven or the equivalent in Dakar. And he's getting his money out and he's feeding his family. And I'm like, this is genius. So I started telling people about it as a payment rail. And uh, I started reaching out to people in the Bitcoin community. Um, I reached out to like Andreas Antonopoulos and we were having chats about stuff. And I was reaching out to like Max Kaiser and people like this. And and I was realizing that they had seen something ahead of time because the one thing that was happening was we had at the time like 7.1 billion people on this planet and only about 3 billion of them were connected to the internet. And yet they all needed to go down to the local farmer's market and buy their stuff, right? And in Africa, they were using a thing called M-Pesa, which is a little flip phone uh, thing that you could use SMS messaging to send money. And in countries that have hyperinflation, like Zimbabwe, people could use this as a way to buy their food at the local market and so on. And I thought, you know, Bitcoin should do this. Bitcoin's got to do this. Then eventually what happened was these uh, ATM machines started rolling out. We started, we see them a lot here now, but back in those days they were rare, but one came into Phoenix, the city I was living in. And um, it was at this one of these check cashing places. Somebody put a Bitcoin ATM in there. So I said, oh, I've got to go check this thing out. This is like, I'm sensing this is like the new economy, right? This is the new, the new money. Um, I go down there. What did I find? I found a line of 50 illegal undocumented Mexican workers lined up to use Western Union to send money back to their families back in Mexico while there's a Bitcoin machine sitting to the side of them. And I'm like, mm. if, if I could only speak Spanish, <laughs> I tell them, you don't need to be losing 27% of your money. There's a machine right there. Use that. But, you know, I thought at this time that was my calling. It was to go out to the world and to try to evangelize people, to try to tell people there is a better way for money exchange. Um, then I started seeing a lot of these people who kind of maybe went down the same avenue and got really so hyper enthusiastic about it were annoying as hell. And I didn't want to be a part of them. <laughs> I'd tell close friends about this sort of thing. And some of them took my advice and they did very well with it. Uh, others didn't. My accountant, of all things, bought some Bitcoin on my advice and then ended up with millions of dollars. It's like, go figure. Um, but these were very rare situations that happened. But meanwhile, I just kept my stash, right? I just kept my Bitcoin. And uh, eventually Bangladesh outlawed Bitcoin. So it was like going to be a 14-year jail cell uh, term if my programmer took Bitcoin. So I had to pay him back in regular fiat currency. And so that wasn't all that good, but I was left with the Bitcoin. So I didn't mind. So I just waited and I waited and I waited and I got to about 2018 and I'm looking at this going, oh my God, this thing's like, it's gone up 2000 times what I paid. What the heck? <laughs> Have you ever had anything that you bought that went up 2000 times? I mean, that had been able to advise anybody about any stock or any kind of investment that then uh, that has a growth that that has. You know? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we think about, oh, you know, buy shares in so-and-so, you might get a 5 or a 10% annualized return on it. And everyone's going, that sounds really good to me. And here I am, the contrarian in the corner going, I just made 2,000 times what I put into something. You know, does anyone want to listen to me? No. All right, fine, whatever. Do your thing. You know, do, do your thing. You do you. It's all good. But meanwhile, I'm like, I'm, I'm going off to Europe or whatever. So here's the funny thing 
When you learn about Bitcoin, you have to go back in time to what money is and you learn the essence of what money actually is. And that was really interesting experience for me because what I did was I ended up going to Venice, Italy. And I went to this little corner of Venice, uh, a place called the Caraneggio, which is the Jewish ghetto. And uh, I stood in this town square because I'd heard this story about this town square that was not very well known, but it's just this quiet little corner and no one goes there and it's this town square. And I realized this is where banking began. This is where banking was, in, at least investment banking began. And the the reason for it is that on the on Venice, which is away from the mainland in Italy, it had a buoyant economy based on trade. You know, Marco Polo, they ran the ship fleets of the Mediterranean. It was very, very wealthy. But they couldn't feed their people with food. All the food was grown on the mainland. And the farmers in the mainland needed seed and labor to toil the land, to plant the seed, to then eventually harvest the crops and feed the city of Venice. And they had this concept within the, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, leadership of Italy that said that according to the Bible, we're not allowed to lend money. That was something that was a New Testament, no, you don't do that. So they were literal and therefore no one could borrow money. So you had farmers out there who couldn't get seed to plant crops because they couldn't borrow the money to do it. And the funny thing is that the Jewish people stepped up and said, well, there's a bit of a hack here. Because we don't subscribe to that second part of the Bible, the New Testament. We're all Old Testament here. And there's nothing in the Old Testament that says that we cannot lend money at reasonable interest rates, particularly to Gentiles. So we're, we're over here in the corner, kind of, you know, we're not getting all the respect. But I'll tell you what, we'll set up these lending establishments. We'll call them banks because they're kind of on the side of the bank on the river by the... Anyway, and we'll have these... Uh, We'll use these pawn shops that we had as fronts for this. There was a one that was a, uh, it was a black pawn shop. There was one that was a red pawn shop. And then one that was a green pawn shop. And they turned them into banks. And it's, that's how the terms in the black, in the red, and in the green come, come about. That's because of historical significance of the uh, invention of banking. When yeah, I realized, yeah. I, uh, why is this relevant to Bitcoin? Because when you break Bitcoin down to what it really is, which is a, a protocol, you start then looking at how in which the protocol is being utilized and how money actually is and why money exists and why lending and financial services exist and that we as a society can never grow and, and evolve without them. So as much as I hate banks because I hate predatory lending and I hate debt, I see a valuable service for these because without it, farmers can't buy seed and plant crops and you and I can't eat. So we need this, right? On the other side, if all the power shifts to the counterparty, then we lose a sense of balance. And the thing that Bitcoin did was it brought in a a balanced narrative. It allowed people who were being censored for free speech like Julian Assange to to get paid. It allowed people who were being censored because of religion like my guy in Bangladesh to get paid. It had all these moral positive reasons, these good reasons. And what did we do to it? Well, in around about 2017, 2018, I saw human flaw. I saw the psychology. I saw FOMO, 
fear of missing out. I saw greed. I saw scammers everywhere, BitConnect. I saw all these things. And I realized at this point in time, society is going to destroy itself. I'm going to take my money and run. Now, in retrospect, if I'd stayed in a couple more years, I would have done better at it. But having said that, I took the money, I put it back into real estate, into real property, and my real estate then went up and I I got 11 times what I was buying real estate for a few short years later. So one leverage to the other. But what was it all about? If I bring all of this back down into a simple narrative, it comes down to something I learned when I was a teenager growing up in Australia. And that's how to surf. Now, when you're, when you're out in the ocean as a kid wanting to surf, you, you realize that you're a bumbling idiot because you're going to constantly get dumped on, thrown off the board. The board's going to hit in the back of the head. You're going to be exhausted and you're going to have a horrible experience. And, right. you, and yet something drives you to want to go out there and do it. I don't know mm. why, but people do it. And I did. And I realized after days and days and days of not getting anywhere and feeling like a total failure out there with all my mates out there in the ocean, we might get a suntan, but that's about the best we're going to get out of it. I started realizing sitting on that board what was going on. I could see waves. Waves go up and waves go down. And I realized that the law of being able to catch a wave means you've got to be ahead of it, you've got to be paddling, and you've got to be prepared. And if you do it at the right time, the wave will will pick you up and the energy of the wave will naturally transfer to you and you'll have the right of your life. If you try and catch that wave when it's on you, it'll dump on you and you'll be hurt. If you try and catch that wave when it's past you, well, that's stupid. Um, And if you're going to invest enough time and energy to go out to where the sets of the waves are, you better go out there knowing how to play the game. I saw waves as being something in, in the world, in a, what I would call a universal truth. All things that go up must come down. And the key is you catch a wave ahead of it at its low point and you ride it up until it crests and you're out of there. And that's how I invest money. And that, mm-hmm. has, that has served me all of my life. It's obvious to most people, and yet we do exactly the same thing because if you saw the number of times friends of mine good friends that i grew up with they're great people but they're poor as hell and you see them reaching out to me with emails or phone calls when all of a sudden there's a real estate boom and they're like miles should i buy real estate i'm like that's like me trying to catch a wave when the damn thing cresting upon me it's gonna hurt no right if you asked me should i buy real estate in 2009 2010 i would have said hell yeah and that's exactly what i did i bought real estate after the crash i bought 20 properties after the crash and watched them go up 11 times in value right that's how you work it you don't catch a wave when it's upon you you catch it ahead of time and The essence of contrarianism is to embrace that and to fight against our natural inclination to follow the herd over the cliff. Shiny object syndrome. You can't do that. You have to look pragmatically at what's going on. Every time somebody sits down with me and we have a conversation about 
where the world's going to hell and, you know, people are crazy and there's wars and there's pandemics and all that stuff. I look at it and I go, biggest wealth transfer in history. <laughs> right now, a friend of mine, uh, well, I should say somebody I look up to, a gentleman by the name of Doug Casey, wrote an incredibly important book in the 80s called uh, Crisis Investing. It's very hard to find. If you go on eBay, you might find it. But it's very important because what he did was when the USSR collapsed in 91, he went into the burning building that was Russia and he bought Gazprom and he bought natural energy stocks and, and all of these things and he just let it sit for a couple of years and when they got back on their feet and everyone realized we still need to keep Europe warm at winter, he sold for millions and millions and millions of dollars. That's yeah, an yeah. example of the surfer mentality. You go where people don't want to go and you buy when there's blood in the streets. And if you don't do that, if all you're going to do is sit there watching the nightly news going, oh, they just bombed a hospital in the Ukraine. Oh, they're so evil. I never, ever want to go there. It's like, I want to go there because you know what? <laughs> When that thing all settles down, they're going to need construction to go and rebuild that damn hospital, right? In a gold rush, be the guy on the side of the river selling shovels. That's what we've got to be looking at right now. And if you say, oh, yeah, but that's morally wrong, you're supporting, you know, it's like bullshit. Morally wrong is not having a hospital and letting people get sick and die. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great analogy. And, uh, you know, I my wife and I share uh, very similar ideologies and, you know, we're always talking about current events and, and the state of the world. And you hear scary, uh, I'm going to call them acronyms because that's what they are. Things like ESG and CBDCs and like all this stuff, you know, build back better and all this stuff. And then at the same time, there are people who are understanding that there are changes coming in the world, whether we like it or not, there's technological changes. You know, I think borders are going to be a thing in history. People are grouping themselves, uh, you know, via the internet and, and other types of communities out there, digital communities. And like you said, if you anticipate when the things are going bad, that they're going to go back up again, because it is like the waves of the ocean it goes up and goes down. If you can be aware of when things go bad, you want to be right there at the cusp of when they start going back up again, and then you can ride that wave right back up. I think it's a perfect analogy. Mm -hmm. You know, Bitcoin was, I think it was in response to what happened in 2008, right? Exactly. And now I think what's going on with the things like ESG and CBDCs is in response to the growth that Bitcoin is taking. Mm -hmm. So you can either ride the wave to your doom or you can, you know, ride the wave up to, to your pleasure and prosperity. No, you're right. I mean, look, if it's as easy for me and, and cost-free for me to send an email to my guy in Bangladesh to tell him what code I need him to write, why can't I send money the same way, mm -hmm. right? If we are electronic, we have an internet, and money is just bytes on a spreadsheet these days, apparently. It doesn't even have gold anymore. So if that is the case, why is it that I can't send it to somebody or receive it in the same way I can do an email? It's because of trolls on the bridge. They don't want to give up their power. And that's the essence of what Bitcoin's all about. No counterparty. The problem is people have lost that narrative. They think of, they think of counterparties as being a necessary evil because, oh, what about the children and, you know, the terrorists and all this stuff? It doesn't happen, right? I mean, come on. We, we're letting the tail wag the dog. 
And the average senator in the United States, the average age of a senator is 64 years old right now. There's no hope that the boomer demographic are ever going to understand or embrace Bitcoin. So what do they do? They find their own version of Bitcoin light that they can create where they are the counterparty and that they can use it as a surveillance tool. And all of a sudden they're on board with that. But they're not on board with the people having control of their own money. And I have a big problem with that. Yeah, Linda, we're seeing, you mentioned earlier that the, you know, the, the empire is starting to collapse. And I think that's, that's the reason why we're seeing so many tyrannical movements right now. Is that because these people know that they're going to lose power eventually. Mm -hmm. And it's inevitable. I mean, technology is going faster than people can even predict. And so if you catch that wave at the right time, you know, they're going to lose control. And they're trying to, to, you know, bring the hammer down now. And that's why we see all these terrible things that government are doing, because eventually we're going to break free of that. Mm -hmm. And if you're at the cusp of that, then I think, uh, you know, you'd be in a good situation. You know, as much as I like Bitcoin and I, I love to keep talking to you about that, uh, you know, what, the one thing that drives me nuts is that this thing that's going around is this meme that Bitcoin solves that, right? I don't think Bitcoin is the answer for everybody, no. but it's definitely one of them. Exactly. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer, at, you know, as a, in the financial world, that don't put all your eggs in one basket. And obviously what you shared is, you know, you got to continue to learning new things. you got to continue to learn new skills. And, of course, real estate is always going to be something that uh, people are going to need. People are going to want roofs over their heads. So they're always going to have to have some place to live. And, you know, I still believe in gold and silver and, and the hard money, as they say it. But uh, I think, it, you know, knowing that such technologies and such things are out there is, is, is half the battle right there anyway. Well, uh, you said something really important before. You said about borders. Maybe borders will go away. And, and certainly in, in the world of the Internet, where commerce and even work these days is now being shifted to a, a digital space. And we have this society that seems to want to, you know, amp that up with the metaverse and all these kind of concepts right now. I, I, I believe you're right. But at the same time, very few of us, uh, well, I'm an, I don't know, maybe I'm an exception, maybe you're an exception, but very few of us have passports. Um, mm. It wasn't until... I think about 15 years ago when they changed the laws that said that because I live in Arizona, so I'm on the border with Mexico, that used to be we could just drive over the border on your driver's license. You didn't need a, a passport. Um, that all changed for the for the right reasons, I guess. But that all changed so that you do now. And we went at that time, only 7% of Americans had a passport. Today, mm -hmm. I think it's closer to 42%. Compare that to Europe, where 94% of people have passports. Freedom of movement in those regions is much more common in Europe than it is here. And yet, what I found was that the reason why I survived 2008 and was not a victim to it was that I had international diversification. I had properties in Australia, I had properties in America, and I could move things around, move the levers around to be able to counter any threat and to take advantage of any opportunity. I've done exactly the same thing today. I just bought a large amount of property in central Mexico. I'm developing it into a, a, a large kind of a compound. I guess it's completely walled. It's, it's amazingly uh, weird. I feel like I'm a tinfoil hat down there. But anyway, uh, you know, this is what I did. And I still have my property here. But I spend so much of my time crossing that border now because I can make my money in the United States and I can spend it there. And down there, for 50 cents, I can have a beer and it's the same thing's five bucks here. So that those sort of 
cost differentials are the difference between being able to keep the money you earn or lose it all to expenses. And so I'm a huge fan of borders. In addition to that, it's not only a financial uh, risk of uh, a, a, a mitigation strategy for risk through diversification, but it's also a physical mitigation of risk. At any moment in time, we don't know if something will kick off here. You know, as we are in the decline of empire and resources become less and less available to all, then there's going to be fights over those resources. And right, it, right. Might, it might be fights over, in the past we've seen it as fights over ideology by a, a population that believes that it's red or it's blue and, you know, I'm with my team until the day I die and, you know, I'm armed to the teeth with my assault rifles to support my team. It's like, well, that's, that's how civil wars happen. Um, right. And you and I know it doesn't matter who's occupying the White House. It doesn't matter. They're still screwing it up. I mean, it's it's the same problems, you know, they're not party solved. They're solved by major protocol changes, which we do not have the willingness to do. So at the end of the day, I look at it and go, maybe having a second passport is not such a bad idea. Maybe having a second residency is not such a bad idea. Maybe having a third. I carry three passports and multiple residencies and I can travel the world and I can find opportunity in different cultures that are stress-free and as long as I've got cash to participate, I'm good to go. And those things, I can tell you right now, for $700, you can get a Mexican permanent residency card. Oh, wow. Now, I mean, it's, but people don't know this because they don't, they think of Mexico as what the media is telling them, well, don't go down there, the cartels will behead you and, you know... No, <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. I mean, I, I, I had major surgery in Guadalajara that cost me $9,000 and I was quoted 150 for a year. I'm willing to put my life in the hands of, of great educated uh, doctors and physicians and architects and lawyers and, and uh, genius people in Latin America who can do these wonderful things and all the media wants to do is scare the pants off everybody and say don't go to Cancun you could get shot on the beach it's like well that's why because they don't want you leaving because you're a, a wonderful little loyal tax slave here and you may as well stay because that way they can they can monitor you and they can control you and they can influence your behavior and they can keep feeding you this social mantra narrative which all of us know doesn't work you know so i've had a couple of people on this show that discussing that was called digital nomad now you know, mm -hmm. digital nomad and yeah that's that's a little bit different than what you're talking about but that having the escape plan or the backup plan i think is very important because you don't know what what's going to happen it seems like we might be on the verge of world war three and i want to be as far away from wherever they're going to drop a bomb if that's going to happen well but i want to be able to make sure my prosperity and my wealth comes with me so take a take a leaf out of history here look to the lockdowns in my home country in Australia. Australia was a free and sovereign country that we never thought ever upset anybody. And it was like a, a wonderful place to grow up, a wonderful place to live, a free and, and, and you know, wealthy uh, place because of all the natural resources. And what happened in COVID? They turned into a 100% totalitarian state where they were stomping on the heads of anybody protesting against the law of government. And now then you see that I couldn't go home for years. I still really to this day will not go home because I don't trust that I can get out if I was to do that. 
But meanwhile, when that was happening and people were, were the, the media were stopping the, or censoring that bad, those bad press. I mean, for example, four or five weeks ago in Australia, they had a march on Canberra, which is like their Washington, D.C., their, their centre. Australia has a population of 25 million people. Three quarters of a million people marched on Canberra. One in 40 that is, so one fortieth of the entire Australian population rose up, travelled vast distance, and marched on their parliament building. And what happened? They got met with L- LRAD weaponry, uh, audio weapons that made them recoil. People's ears are bleeding. You know, kids are, 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 are buckling over in pain. This is the stuff that was going on in my home country. Meanwhile, I look to the north. I looked at the truck convoys in, in uh, uh, yeah. uh, Canada and I look yeah. at exactly what they did to them. And I go, well, that's interesting. We both happen to be, you know, Australia and Canada are both British Commonwealth uh, countries that have a Wellington form of government. Why is it that leadership in these regions feel they have the right to impose these draconian levels of rule on people who just want to be free, right? Mm-hmm. Why would they do that? If, if it's happening there and it's happening in Canada, why the hell can't it happen here? Yeah, absolutely. We saw what happened with just January 6th, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, so, I'm, I, mean, I mean, I'm not it's sure. All, it's all part of the same agenda, in my opinion. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I came to the United States willingly to accept the Constitution. I stood in front of a judge in a courtroom and with hand on heart and, and on the Bible, I accepted the Constitution. It was a willing decision because I believe in freedom. I believe in those things. But when I see it being trashed about me all the time, it's not like, well, that's deplorable. You know, they should never do that to the Constitution. I can't say that patriotically. I look at myself in the mirror and go, Miles, what the hell did you decide to do? You got lied to. You came here, you got lied to. Well, screw that. (laughs) I mean, my loyalty goes so far, right? Right. At some point, it's like, I did all the right things. I, you know, I pay my taxes. I, I support my country. I, I am, you know, I try to motivate people to be better. I try to do all the right things. But at some point, you're like, if it ain't coming back and it's not reciprocated, I'm out of here. I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, Miles, I want to respect your time, and uh, despite the fact that we had some audio challenges here, uh, you know, I want to. I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours, but we'll, we'll spare the Joe Rogan podcast episode. Maybe we can invite <laughs> you on again. Sure. But. Uh, you know, I'm going to flatter you for a second. I, I put the, the Be Unconstrained uh, podcast on my favorites list. So I definitely want to hear more of uh, some of the insight that you have. Oh, great. And uh, okay. as far as, uh, you know, what you're doing to help other people, what, where can people find you right now? Well, that's it. I mean, I, I, I tried to make it easy and have a one-stop shopping experience for freedom uh, <laughs> over at beunconstrained.com. So if they hit mm-hmm. that website up, they'll get access to my podcasts and all that stuff, my articles and, and all of that wonderful thing, where they can find me and so on. All right. Well, I like the idea of becoming unconstrained. My question for you, Miles, is are you Invictus? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I, I, I can only say you be the judge. All right. Well, I think, I think that just from some of the stuff that you share with, uh, with me and with the audience, that uh, you're definitely on the right path. And you know, that word is, uh, is an old Greek term that uh, most people don't uh, don't understand what it means, but I've just been asking most of my guests from the beginning. So appreciate that. All right. Thank you for, uh, for your time. No problem. Thank you.